Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you ever spent an entire day at work and in your life feeling that you're really busy, you're doing all this stuff, you're sending emails, you're getting to-dos done, you're, you're checking stuff out on, on your news feeds, and at the end of the day, you look back and you realize, man, I, I really wasn't all that productive. I didn't get much done, even though I felt busy. And on top of that, I my brain feels fuzzy. I feel distracted. I can't really focus. I have this sort of anxiety that there's stuff that I need to be doing, but I don't know what it is. Well, if that's you, this podcast is for you. My guest today is Cal Newport. Uh, I've had him on the show before. We talked about his book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. Anyways, Cal is back with a new book called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And guys, this is one of the best books I've read, and uh, it's one of the one a big life-changing book for me, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating with this. In Deep Work, Cal makes the case that we live in an environment and in a culture that promotes shallow work, uh, sort of distracted work that doesn't really get a lot done, and it keeps us away from deep work, which requires focused, intense concentration for long periods of time. And that this deep work, if we're able to develop this skill of doing deep work, will set us apart uh, in our career, in the economy, and also give us a more meaningful life. Uh, so today on the podcast, we discuss Cal's case for deep work, as well as practical nuts and bolt tips to help you have more deep work in your life. Really great actionable tips in this podcast. So get a pen and paper. You're going to want to take notes. So without further ado, Deep Work with Cal Newport. Cal Newport, welcome back to the show. Hi, Brett. Thanks for having me back. Uh, so yeah, we had you about a year ago, I think a little over a year ago for your uh, book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And that was a really well-received podcast. I still get emails about that podcast. And you're out with a new book that I think in a way uh, takes So Good You Can't Ignore You and extends on it a little bit. Well, not a little bit, but a lot. Uh, it's called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World, and uh, loved it. One of my favorite books that I've read. Uh, so let's talk about what is deep work. Your book's called Deep Work. Let's talk about what is deep work. Well, deep work is uh, the term I coined to describe the activity of focusing without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. 
Okay. And how did, I mean, how did you stumble upon it? Because like you, you, you fleshed it out more. We'll talk more about it. But how did you stumble upon this concept of deep work? And what's like the opposite of deep work? Yeah, so the, the opposite of deep work uh, is shallow work. Uh, which which I define to be work that it doesn't require um, intense, undistracted uh, focus. Uh, it's work that tends to be a little bit more logistical in nature, uh, and that would doesn't really leverage your skills at a high level. You know that is you know someone else could replicate it pretty easily. Uh, so that would include things like answering emails, uh, you know, meetings, uh, maybe optimizing your social media analytics setup or these type of things that are uh, kind of logistical but don't require a lot of intense focus. Um, so it's, a, it's an important uh, dichotomy, I think. You have deep efforts on one hand and shallow on the other. And it's not that one is good or one is bad, but they're two different types of work. You know, not all work is work. They both have their value, but recognizing that you need to do both, just having a different term for each uh, making that distinction, at least in my own life, was a real step forward because it got me out of this trap of, hey, anything that possibly has a benefit is work, so I should just be doing stuff and be busy all the time. And it gave me a more nuanced understanding of work where I, I see it more that, that shallow work is sort of a necessary evil. It's the stuff that, that allows you to keep your job, while deep work is the stuff that's going to help you get promoted. It's the stuff that's really going to make a difference. So like, what are some examples of deep work? Um, from your own life and maybe from the lives of other people you've looked into? So anytime you're, you're applying your, your skills uh, with essentially at, at the limit of your ability to try to produce the best thing you're currently capable of producing with your skills, you know, that's deep work. So in my own life, my day job is I'm a computer science professor and I, I work in theoretical computer science, which is essentially proving math proofs is, is what I do for a living. So, so certainly it's a clear example of deep work is when uh, you know, I'm grappling, for example, to uh, get a proof, a mathematical proof to work. Uh, or in my life, if I'm trying to read someone else's uh, academic paper and understand their techniques, trying to figure out what they're doing, you know, that's something that requires deep work. But, but in other fields, you know, this shows up in different guises. So it could be, for example, in your life, Brett, uh, when you're trying to actually uh, write a, a sort of compelling and well-researched piece of content, that's going to be an example. Uh, that's going to be an example of deep work. Um, or if you're in a business context, you know, really trying to understand, uh, say, the business landscape and come up with a new strategy could be deep work. And finally, I think it's worth noting that the act of learning things that are hard necessarily requires deep work. So anytime you're actually trying to pick up a new skill or master a new piece of information or technique, that's also going to be deep work. So that, uh, that kind of segues like to that deliberate practice. You've written a lot about this. Yeah. So deliberate practice is what's required to pick up cognitively demanding skills. Uh, and deliberate practice we know from, from both psychology and neuroscience requires uh, intense concentration. Um, so if you're good at deep work, one of the things you become good at is learning things very quickly. So this is sort of one of the advantages you get from the skill. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. You, you make the case that uh, deep work is becoming more and more rare today, which makes it more and more valuable. Let's talk about why, first, why it's so rare. Why is deep work becoming so rare in today's uh, economy and environment? Yeah, so, and I, and I think this is the, the core idea, you know, behind this book. I call it the deep work hypothesis. Uh, the whole sort of reason for this book to exist is uh, deep work, this thing that we're talking about, is becoming more rare at exactly the same time that I think it's becoming more valuable in our economy. And because of that, 
that means that if you're one of the few who actually cultivates this skill, who actually uh, tries to systematically develop a deep life, you're going to thrive. It's going to be like a superpower. So if you're someone who actually systematically trains your ability to focus, you can become deeper and deeper and higher and higher intensity when you concentrate and that aggressively protects and supports time and your schedule to do deep work, uh, you know, my whole argument is you are going to thrive in almost any knowledge work job. So if we go back to this deep work hypothesis, the, uh, the two elements are it's becoming rare while it's becoming more valuable. Uh, so you're asking why uh, is it becoming more rare? And I think this is one of the big stories in uh, business in the last one to two decades is that as work is becoming more competitive and more complicated, as work is getting to this place where the ability to focus and to learn things and to produce things at high level value is becoming more valued, we're actually seeing most of the trends in the workplace being uh, antithetical to depth. We're seeing things like always-on email culture. We're seeing the rise of open office. We're seeing the rise of office instant messenger tools. All of these things make it almost impossible uh, to work deeply. Um, and, and so I think this is a huge trend in business. There, there's, you know, I have several hypotheses for why this is happening, but I think we all sort of agree that it is happening, that most people probably find it harder today by an order of magnitude than it might have been 20 years ago to find time to really focus hard on things that matter. Right, because there's you're always living in, I mean, for me, like I have the trouble with like living within my inbox. And uh, the, the problem with email, the way the inbox are set up, is that everything is treated as equally important. Yeah. And, and so we, we could step back and say, so why, is, why would businesses ever promote uh, behaviors that makes right. the businesses run worse, right? It seems a little bit paradoxical. And my, my hypothesis, the one I lay out in the book, and I think there's other reasons, but my, my hypothesis is uh, a defining feature of knowledge work is that uh, it's very difficult, as the economists would say, to measure the marginal productivity of an individual, and what that means is because of the complexity of the work, it's very hard to isolate one person and say, uh, here's how much value they're bringing to, to our company. In a way that it would be easy to do if you were, say, a door-to-door salesman. Right? right? You bring in this many dollars. Or if you're on an assembly line, you, you process this many widgets. And knowledge work is complicated. So uh, my conjecture is in the absence of this type of direct feedback of this behavior is making us more profitable, this behavior is making us less profitable, what's going to thrive? And I claim what's going to thrive are behaviors that are easier for you in the moment. And this is the reason, for example, why a culture where uh, everything is done in email, everything goes in the one inbox, and you're just sort of expected to respond pretty quickly to any email you receive. Why does that thrive? Well, it makes your life in the moment easier. Gotcha. You, know, you don't have to. You don't have to sit there and plan in advance. Okay, how is my work going to unfold this week? What am I going to need to get my work done? Let me make sure that I've I've sent this memo to this person a few days in advance so I get the stuff I need. You don't have to manage your workflow in a complicated way. You can just sort of get there in your inbox and just start rock and rolling and and figure things out with messages as you go around. Now it turns out that this is incredibly ineffective. It's also psychologically incredibly draining, um, but it's easier. Right, you don't you don't have to think that much about your work. You don't have to have a a, a master of workflow. You just sort of get in your inbox and do things. So I, I think this is why we see deep work being squelched. It's hard to directly measure its its uh, impact on the bottom line, and therefore, in its absence, things that are easier in the moment 
are going to thrive. And a lot of the behaviors that are easier uh, tend to be behaviors that fragment your attention and hurt your ability to focus. Right. And you talked more detail about that. That was interesting about there's a culture where, you know, yeah, if you respond to your email fast or quickly and you respond to a lot of emails, it kind of shows to the rest of your coworkers, like I'm working, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing my job or having that green dot on all the time, even when office hours are over, it shows like I'm really dedicated, but you might not be even doing anything at all, like anything productive. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, deep work is what allows you to produce things of real value. It's what uses your skills. So if your attention is constantly fragmented, uh, you can't do deep work. So from a cognitive perspective, uh, you're operating at, at a sort of severe disadvantage. And you know, I, I think it's worth emphasizing that easy is not the same thing as productive. So making your life easier does not necessarily make you better at your job. And I think the right analogy to understand how a lot of organizations work today would be to imagine if you had an assembly line back in the industrial age. And it would say it's a complicated assembly line. There's different materials and tools are needed at different stations and they're used up at different rates. And imagine you said, here's what we're going to do. This is too complicated to try to figure out in advance You know, the, the, the inventory and, and, and the distribution of tools. Let's just put all the resources and all the tools in a big pile in the parking lot. And now it's really easy. No one has to think about workflows and, and chains and inventories. If you need something, you know where it is. You just go to the parking lot to get it. Mm. And as stuff comes in, we don't have to think about how to distribute. Just dump it in the parking lot. It would be much easier. People would, would, would not have to think at all about you know, the complexities of logistics. On the other hand, it, it would be an incredibly inefficient way to run an assembly line because everyone would constantly be walking out to the parking lot to get what they need. It would also be very frustrating. I think that's exactly what's going on with our connectivity culture. Sure, it's easier if all I, I, whatever the problem is, whatever the issue is, just send an email to your one email address into your inbox and we can just work it out. That's easier, but like walking to the parking lot for every tool is an incredibly inefficient way to work. Right. And it's amazing. You talk about, you know, how it's become such an article of faith, like this connect connectivity culture is, you know, what, what you're supposed to do and no one questions it. But then you highlight research where uh, researchers came into a company that was really connected, right? They use their black bones, their blackberries and their email on the phone, even after office hours. And they asked them, like, don't do that anymore. Like they took away their email. Uh, and what happened when they took away uh, their email capabilities after office hours? Yeah, this was researched by Leslie Perlow at the Harvard Business School, and she did it at the Boston Consulting Group, which was an incredibly connected, high-pressure uh, management consulting outfit. And at first, actually, uh, it was called Plan Time Off. At first, she was just getting groups to take – everyone would have one night, one night a week in which they weren't working, which tells you a little something about how, how connected <laughs> these guys were. We're not talking about – it's just one, one time a week, and it was a nighttime. And they were freaking out about it. They are freaking out about it. And then they eventually she, – she pushed it farther and had people taking one full – every member of the team would take one full weekday off during the week where they're unreachable. And not only did their happiness go up, but the client satisfaction – went up for these teams. Um, but if you, if, you read, if you read her book on this, it's called Sleeping With Your Smartphone. Um, what she talks about, what they learned was, the key was uh, communication. That, that once, once they had this common thing, they, they would meet, these teams would meet and talk about it, about trying to make these one day off or this one night off and what was working and what wasn't. And once they started having this conversation, they realized that there was all of these other 
behaviors they they had just accepted as necessary, uh, a lot of behaviors surrounding email and connectivity that were actually very arbitrary. And once they opened up these lines of communication, a lot of the benefit came from once they talked about it, they said, well, this is stupid. Like, why we shouldn't have to do this? It doesn't make sense that we would answer emails at night. It doesn't make sense. In fact, they even ended up, after having these conversations, they changed the email software at Boston Consulting Group so that, for example, if you tried to send an email after 6 p.m., it would pop up and say the default behavior here is it will hold this for you and send it to the person in the morning unless mm-hmm. unless you specifically tell me no no I still want you to send it uh, at night with an urgent tag on it so it, it the conversations opened up the fact that a lot of this behavior we have in the workplace is not somehow the cornerstone of our productivity it's really just kind of arbitrary arbitrary it's just us going using the path of least resistance. Yeah, she even has this great thing called the cycle of, of uh, connectivity where uh, she calls it a vicious cycle. But she walks through, you know, how how does a company like BCG get to a point where everyone's always connected? And it's not something anyone ever sat down and said, here's what we should do. This would be the most productive. It's actually just sort of arises in a feedback loop where, well, well, this person's on a little bit more. So if I answer him, that's good. And then you need to answer me. And then it's this cycle. And then next thing they know, this behavior is ingrained, even though no one ever decided this is what they should do. And there was no real evidence that it was actually a productive way to work. So let's talk about what makes deep work so valuable. Because this is, I mean, on the surface, people, it would seem, I don't know, Maybe controversial, not controversial. I think it's intuitive. We understand it would, be, it would be valuable. But in this age where, like, the economy, like, we're having this great disruption, right? There's a great restructuring. You have to be able to put on different hats, right? You got to be able to answer your own email, be a social media guru, do your own marketing, like, do it, do it all, right? Very multitask. But you're saying, no, actually, it'd be more, you'd be able to provide more value uh, to the economy by. That picking one skill that you want to focus on and do it deeply. So, how is deep work uh, valuable in today's economy? Yeah, I think I think you hit on that just right. Um, what's valuable in today's economy, which is which is very competitive, is that you're able to do something uh, that's very valuable very well. Something that that uh, you know it's not easy for them to find someone else to do it or to outsource. That so you 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 do something very valuable very well. Uh, that's what's valuable. If you're really quick at email, if you use a lot of social media, that's easily replicatable, right? That's not actually something that that's you know that valuable. But if you have some hard skill that you can do well, that's going to be the currency for thriving in this economy. And deep work is like the mint that prints that currency. Because when you're in a state of deep work, here's what we know about it from the research. Uh, all right, so first of all, you need to be in a state of deep work uh, to learn hard things quickly. So if you develop your ability to concentrate, to be very intense, and you regularly have time to apply that concentration, uh, you can really quickly pick up complicated new information and skills, which is uh, hugely important you know, for, for being someone who's valuable in the economy. Uh, we also know about deep work that when you work in a state of intense concentration, you produce work uh, at both a higher rate of quality and quantity as compared to to less intensely focused, uh, more fragmented attention. So someone who, who, who regularly does deep work is able to produce a lot and do so in a little amount of time. And you know, I, I profile some of these deep workers in my book, and a lot of them uh, to the outside world seem superhuman. But they're not supermen. The, the, the main thing they're doing that other people aren't, that their peers aren't doing, is they are actually just treating their ability to focus like a muscle and they're giving it a lot of reps, and then they're going out there and doing feats of strength. 
Gotcha. Well, yeah, some of the people you highlight. So, for example, uh, someone who learned, who used deep work to learn a very hard skill that's valuable in today's economy is the fellow that who taught himself coding like in a few months because he needed a job or something like that. What was his name again? Oh yeah, from the from yeah Jason from the beginning of the book. Yeah, he was in a a, a job here in, Nor- in Northern Virginia, making forty thousand dollars a year, basically filling out spreadsheets, and you know he hated it. So he said, I need more valuable skills. So he wanted to learn how to computer program. So he gave himself a crash course in deep work by basically locking himself in a room uh, without any electronics and just these programming books. And basically, it was hard at first, but over time, he increased his ability just to focus hard uh, on these books. And he was able to uh, teach himself programming uh, in a very fast amount of time, then went out to San Francisco to get a six-figure job uh, at a startup. And then once he's out at that startup, he's really been been crushing it because he comes in early, he puts on his brown noise headphones and is able to just focus like a laser beam on his coding. So he's also a very productive member once there. That's a, that's a perfect case study. Because, you know, Brett, what I'm, what I'm going at for this book is that this is, uh, it's, it's not social critique. It's actually... Um, uh, a guidebook for those, if you want to be one of the few who recognizes the value of this skill, then you should actually be happy that most people are ignoring it. You should mm-hmm. actually be happy that most people are on their phones all the time and that, that people are focusing on shallow activities because it's this huge economic opportunity that if you know you take deep work seriously, which again, I think means you have to train your ability to focus and then go through great efforts to protect and support periods to do this work throughout your work week. If you do those two things, essentially do CrossFit for your mind, uh, make that same type of commitment, uh, it's a it's a blue ocean playing field out there. You know, the, the few people who do that are really thriving. So, you know, if you're if you're hearing this podcast, you should be hoping that uh, that the not too many other people are. Um, because I'm telling you, this is one of the big opportunities out there. You know, focus is the new IQ. Uh, but unlike regular IQ, it's something that you can get substantially better at in a short amount of time. Right. I mean, that, that's a great point because, like, in, in today's economy, particularly, like, okay, like my where I'm at, right? I, I produce online content. the The uh, barrier to entry is extremely low. Anyone can do it, right? Buy a ten dollar domain. You install WordPress for free. You can get going. But like. What makes what separates the people who are really successful, or one of the things that separates the people who are really successful, is like they are able to just focus all their time on creating the content that people actually want to read, right? And I mean that's one of the reasons like I don't do a lot of traveling or go to conferences because it takes away from writing, um, or I don't do a lot of social media or a lot of tweeting because like that takes away from writing because uh, the writing is like what's important, what's valuable. Um, but I, people, a lot of people in this sphere have this idea that, well, you have to be all over the place, go to the conferences, network, do the social media, do the Instagram. But that all that stuff sort of uh, dissipates uh, your impact a lot. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example because there, there's a ton of shallow tasks that surround running uh, uh, a media company like like art of manliness, but but you know you, the stuff about the the your WordPress configuration and making sure that the <laughs> mailing list and this and that, uh, but all of that stuff is is sort of low value in the sense that it doesn't require a hard won skill and it's something that could be outsourced or someone else could do with no real effect on the success or failure of your business. Whereas the producing of the content's at the core of it. Um, so by focusing on the content and doing that deeply, you know that's what produces value for your business. So at first maybe you had to to batch and and try to handle the shallow stuff as efficiently as you can whereas now as you've grown you can probably have other people do it but you know i i think there's a an underlying trend going on here which is in our culture 
we've lost an ethic of craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. And I think in the absence of this, abs- uh, this, this ethic of craftsmanship, for people who are in, for example, your position running you know, small companies or online media companies, there's this anxiety about uh, what does it mean to be doing my job well. And I think that anxiety drives a lot of this sort of frenetic, low-value, shallow activities, the frequent attending of conferences, the, the obsessing about your email funnels and, and getting the configuration <laughs> just right on your social media share buttons. Because to be really busy and to be doing lots of stuff and to be doing lots of coffees and emails and all these sort of things, at least you feel like, okay, I guess I'm, I'm working, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I can feel a little bit less anxious about this company and its success. But we used to have this culture, this ethic of craftsmanship uh, that placed a lot of value on, you know, we have this sort of ideal image of the, you know, the art of manliness. We can see this ideal image of the man is sort of you, 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 you sit there and with your skill, you apply your craft and you produce something in the world that's valuable that did not exist before. And that that was a noble task. Um, and that ethic, if, if you subscribe to it, it allows you to release a lot of that anxiety and to, to be less worried about, am I doing, am I busy all the time? And say, I can be very satisfied and confident really putting my attention on crafting something very valuable. Ultimately, that's what matters. And so if you can, if you can reclaim this sort of you know, older manly virtue of, of craftsmanship, I think it's, it's easier to start really prioritizing depth and, and being okay with that. So it not only does, does deep work make you economically valuable, it can also provide meaning, philosophical, uh, spiritual, uh, existential meaning in your life. Yeah, I have a long chapter in the book where I go through uh, all the different evidence for why that's true. And in fact, I was surprised. I mean, I, I had experienced it in my own life that the more I focused on depth and the less I focused on shallow, not only was I more successful, I, I found my life more meaningful. But when I started looking into the research for why that might be true, I was surprised by how much evidence there was from different fields uh, that all pointed towards the same conclusion, that, that a, a life of focused attention on something that is, is uh, uh, valuable is really a much better life than one in which your attention is compl- uh, frenetically moving around. I mean, if anything, there's, there's this rising hypothesis in psychology and neuroscience that our brain is really not evolved for this type of frenetic, constant context switching and it essentially is messing up your chemicals. And this, it gives rise you know, to anxiety and, and uh, the anxiety-related issues. Our brain is really not made for it. Our brain is much more wired to spend uh, long amounts of time sort of concentrating on, on a, a small amount of things. It's sort of a, a deep life is a good life. Right. Well, yeah, that's from uh, Winifred Gallagher, right? Or from Wrapped. She wrote Wrapped. Yeah, Wrapped. A, a book that Brett and I are big supporters of. Yeah. 2009, this great book. I mean, it's, she's a science writer, and she basically just went through the science of attention uh, all the way back from you know William James through through fMRIs today, and it's fascinating. Um, but ultimately, her conclusion is, uh, she says, I choose to live the focused life because it's the best type of life there is. That's her conclusion after going through all of this science, is to live a life where you're deliberate with your attention. Um, all the different science points to the conclusion, that's a really good way to live. Right. And like William James, he said, uh, like all the way back in the 19th century, like wisdom is knowing what to overlook, right? I think something like that he said to the extent it's just part of living a good life is just knowing what to focus on and what to ignore. And I think in today's environment, we think where everything is like the, uh, what's, there's a book, the, uh, 
uh, future sh- or present shock. Everything is important. Yeah. Everything's now. We we lose that that insight uh, or that uh, like you said, our brain's not evolved for this new environment, and it just creates just anxiety and uh, distraction, and it's not healthy and not it's not productive. Yeah, and in fact, I you know I, I in the beginning of my chapter about that that uh, that reality, I said let me just paint you this picture of uh, a, a craftsman. Uh, it's a guy who, who, who works on near the shore of Lake Michigan and Wisconsin in an open air barn and forges metal. And I sort of paint the picture of this guy and his life. And I say, you're probably have no interest in metal. You probably have no interest in blacksmithing, but if you're like most people, there's still something deeply attractive to you yeah. about this image of this guy who's there in the open air barn. And all of his attention is on doing this fine crafting of it. And I say, forget all the science. You already sort of know deep down that that you know our souls resonate with this idea of of pain, sort of wrap deep attention to do things valuable. It's it's we're we're wired for that. Whether it's at a blacksmith's forge or at a computer screen running computer code, that doesn't really matter. It's the underlying you know uh, wrapped attention, craftsmanship, giving your full focus on producing something valuable. That's what resonates. Right. And I feel like when I was reading this section of your book, I felt like it really connected or uh, extended your argument you made in So Good They Can't Ignore You on a deeper level. Did I read that right or was I reading it the right way? Yeah. Yeah, because in So Good You Can't Ignore You, you know, I was asking the question, what makes people happy in their careers? And I said the leading hypothesis that they they follow their passion is wrong. Um, the evidence seems to support how most people end up loving their work is that they they get really good at something valuable, and for a lot of different reasons that makes you happy. Um, so in some sense, deep work was uh, a follow up to that because people said, uh, "Okay, I get that. So how do I get good at something valuable?" <laughs> and, uh, and and so the answer was, you know, well, deep work. And as you just pointed out, there's obviously you know overlaps. I, I noted and so good they can't ignore you that craftsmanship creates a lot of value. Uh, people seem to really enjoy their lives when they're doing it. And so in this book, Deep Work, I got to sort of follow up on the the science of why that's true. Okay. So we've, we've laid the foundation of uh, why deep work is, is important, valuable, it's becoming increasingly rare, and why it can provide meaning. What I, what I love about your book, though, you don't just stop there, right? You said it's not a, you, you, like you said, it's not a critique, a Jeremiah against the, uh, the current state of things, but you actually provide some actionable things that people can do to uh, practice deep work in their lives. So what are your, what do you think are the, the, the most things that people could start doing today that would allow them to start having more deep work in their own lives? Right. This is the key question. So what does it mean to, if you, if you agree with this premise that, you know, deep work makes you better, makes you more competitive, makes you happier, what does it actually mean to embrace a deep life? And there's, uh, the way I like to think about it is there's, there's three types of commitments you have to make if you want to live a deep life and get all these advantages. Um, so one, you have to commit to training your ability to focus. And there's any number of different things you can do. But focus is a skill, like playing the guitar, not a habit, like flossing your teeth. It's not something that you know how to do. You just have to spend more time doing it. It actually has to be practiced. Uh, most people, if I just took you and locked you in a room and said concentrate for the next three hours, would be bad at it. <laughs> if you haven't actually been practicing and, and increasing your, your depths of intensity. So the, the first type of commitment to living a deep life is you need to, to train your ability to focus just like you would uh, have an exercise routine. And there's there's several strategies we can talk about there. The second com- uh, commitment is you need to actually fight to protect and support deep work in your schedule. 
So that means you have to put in the effort, and it takes a lot of effort, to, to put aside and protect on a regular basis time to actually apply this deeply focused work. And by, you need to support it, meaning you need to, to put things around this deep work that, that helps you succeed with it, you know, how, where you do the work, how you do it, the rituals. And there's, there's specific strategies we can talk there. And, and third, and perhaps most controversially, I think if you really want to embrace the deep life, I think it's important to uh, take some semi-radical steps that demonstrate to yourself that you take your attention very seriously. So, you know, off the, right off the bat, make some sort of bolder move that, that signals to yourself, hey, you know what, my attention, my ability to concentrate is very important to me. So just as when people want to make the you know, bold decision to get more fit, they might choke up the money you need to join a CrossFit gym. You know, I'm recommending if you're going to take deep work seriously, you want to do the attentional equivalent, which might be something like quitting Facebook or uh, leaving your phone in the car after you get home from work. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. 
ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Gotcha. Well, let's talk, let's talk about those one by one. So the developing the skill of focus, I mean, what are some things that people can do uh, to develop that skill? So uh, a couple of quick ideas. Um, so, so one is uh, you need to embrace boredom. So a, a big thing that makes it hard to focus is if your mind uh, is addicted to getting novel stimuli uh, sort of at all times, it's very difficult to then focus when it comes time to focus because uh, doing deep work is by definition boring in the sense that deep work is a, a period where you're not going to have a bunch of novel stimuli because you're, you're concentrating on just one thing. Um, so if your mind is addicted to, I always have novel stimuli, I never have to go without them, which is easy to get to this day because your phone can deliver novel stimuli at any moment in any place, it's going to be hard to focus intensely. Uh, so one thing I recommend is giving yourself tons of practice of being bored, by which I mean just a lot of practice of, of being somewhere and not having any novel stimuli. And, you know, it could be something somewhat drastic. Like I just got back from, uh, you know, Christmas holidays at my parents, brought my family up to New Jersey for four days, and I left my phone at home. So there was four days where I just didn't have a phone. I had no portal to any sort of entertainment. So I couldn't get novel stimuli whenever I wanted it. That's great practice. Uh, but it could be something less radical, like just taking certain times. Like I'm going to uh, put my phone away for the next hour or uh, at work, you know, saying, here's the next time I'm going to use the internet, uh, maybe like an hour and a half or two hours from now. And just give yourself that, that one or two hours to just work and to be a little bit bored and to not have novel stimuli. So, so getting yourself used to not having novel stimuli um, is a key way to train your focus. Uh, a second quick thing I'll recommend is productive meditation, which is where you simply you go for a walk, you give yourself a hard problem to work on, and you just try to give it as much attention as you can. And just like in mindfulness meditation, if you find your attention wandering away from the problem, notice that and then bring your attention back to it and keep trying to push yourself deeper and deeper. You know, I started doing this in 2009. After about six months of that training, I found that I had a uh, a significant increase in my ability to concentrate to the point now where I can do a lot of my mathematics work on foot. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've done this after that whole embracing boredom thing. I've, that really helped me out a lot. I've found opportunities now. Like the other day, I was in. There was a long line at the the post office, and instead of pulling out my phone from my back pocket, I just said, "Okay, I'm going to do what Cal says. I'm just going to embrace boredom." And I just stood there. I was probably in the line for 20 minutes. And it was long, it was tedious, but I was like, okay, I'm training my brain to be used to boredom. Um, and I've also done things on my phone where I have like an app uh, that blocks my phone off in the morning and in the evening when I'm with my kids. Um, because, you know, look, p- kids are fun, but sometimes they can be really boring when they're like five, two years old and they want to like play Legos all the time. And sometimes you, you know, I'd get in the habit, like, okay, I'll just, while I'm playing Legos, I'll check Instagram, I'll check email. I don't do that anymore. Um, and so I'm training my brain to be bored. So thank you for that whole idea of embracing boredom. Yeah. And it also reduces anxiety. Uh, boredom's great. I'm a big boredom booster. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm bored a lot. And I, you know, it's, I think that makes my life better. It's, it's well, I, I think it stimulates you to actually like find ways to make your life better in like significant ways or meaningful ways. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. So, I mean, that's, and I, let me ask you, I mean, you've probably, probably noticed you do this for enough time then when you sit down to write the the sort of complicated blog article, you probably find it easier, right? Because right. you don't have this. Uh, I need this email real quick. My you know your mind sort of sounding off the alarms like stimuli, stimuli, stimuli. You right, know, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. And like when I experienced deep work at its best, when I can remember, I, I have it now. And there's been moments where throughout my writing career where it'll be really great. And then sometimes I'll get off the, the wheels will fall off the wagon and then uh, I'll have to get back on. But like when I was in law school, that's when I, I really, when I experienced the deep work that you talked about uh, in your own personal experience where, you know, from like seven o'clock until eight o'clock at night, I was pretty much just a treated, I was studying all the time and I would just have to go through these very obscure, poorly written 19th century legal cases and suss out, you know, the case law or what's the law from that and like apply them to the facts. And, and I, I would, I would, I would seriously, I would get so zoned in on it. Uh, it would feel like and it, to me, it felt like only a few minutes had passed by, but it'd be like an hour. Um, yeah. but I was like in the flow and I, I really did well in law school because of that. And I, I, I attributed that whole deep work concept. Yeah, I love it. The image of, of sitting there with a, a 19th century law book, for those of us who are deep work proponents, you know, that's like deep work porn right there. Right, 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 exactly. And the walking thing, that's great too. I mean, there's research that shows that uh, taking breaks, right, um, and doing something else that might not be super focused, but you're thinking about the thing you're thinking about, right, in a very, but while doing something else like walking or doing a walking meditation, you actually get insights that you otherwise wouldn't have if you just try to brute force get at it, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, to give you a recent example, uh, earlier this month, my family did a, a, we spent a week in the Bahamas for our vacation this year. And, you know, so I showed up there with, I, I just had this hard proof that I I knew I needed to prove this thing. I had no idea how to prove it. Um, so I just walked the beach. And I, you know, I walked the beach for a week. It wasn't until day five of the trip that, that oh, I see how to do this. And it wasn't that hard once I'd actually identified right. it. But I don't, you couldn't have brute forced it. Uh, you know, it, it needed to be just, uh, my mind needed to just, just come at it from different angles, work at it. Uh, and, and you know, that's the type of thing that if you practice that at first, you'll find it hard. And it, it really only takes a few months. Um, before you find that you're able to actually hold things in your mind with practice and work on them. So I also do a lot of writing in my mind. Um, many of the chapters of So Good They Can't Ignore You, for example, were you know outlined on my walk back from the campus where I was a postdoc at the time to my uh, apartment across the Charles River. Uh, 
because you can write in your mind, you can solve problems in your mind. Uh, it it takes practice, but but maybe not as much as you think. Yeah, that's what both my wife and I do when we like we both write when we're like sometimes I'll be like, "What are you thinking about?" She's like, "Oh, I'm writing," and like and like or like I'll be doing the same. I'll zone out, and she's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm writing the like the first paragraph to like." Yep. And then you when you're when you're actually at the computer, you can sit down and write it. Yeah, exactly. I love it. as opposed to just staring at this computer screen and trying to force it. And you have all the distractions a couple mouse clicks away. It's not always the most conducive thing for getting work done. Right. So let's talk about that second aspect of um, setting up structures to uh, of, to protect your deep work time. Yeah. So now, 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 once you have your ability to focus honed, the next thing you need is to actually have the opportunity to apply it on a regular basis. So you don't get the benefits of deep work unless you're actually regularly doing deep work. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you three quick things. That, that can help you protect and support deep work you know, in your routine. One, having, having rituals and routines surrounding deep work sessions uh, really helps. So something that you, some sort of ritual or routine you always do uh, right before you start deep working, uh, that helps your mind transform into that, that deep work mindset easier. By, by contrast, if you just, uh, in an ad hoc fashion, try to wrench your attention away from something you're doing and say, now I'm going to concentrate – that takes a lot of uh, willpower and energy, and it's going to be less successful. So I, I, I talk about a lot of routines people have, and they're as simple as you know you you change the lighting in your office and put a do not disturb sign, to as elaborate as you know relatively long walks through certain locations or going to a cabin in the woods. I mean, uh, there's there's a whole there's a whole scale there. Right. Uh, another thing that I you know, a basic strategy that works really well is at the beginning of the week, schedule your deep work sessions on your calendar like you would any other meeting or appointment, and then treat them like any other meeting or appointment, which means if someone says, hey, can you jump on a call on Tuesday at 9, you can say, oh, no, I have a thing from, you know, 9 to 12 on my calendar. I can't do it then. Let's do it later. Or if someone says, I sent you an email, why not hear back from you? You're like, oh, no, I, was, I had a thing. Uh, <laughs> we have a It's a thing. We have a semantics already around appointments and meetings right. in the modern workplace. People understand that you know when you have an appointment or meeting that, that you're inaccessible during that time. Uh, so that's a simple thing. The third thing, which I think is a little bit more complex but I think is important, is that you open up a dialogue with your boss, be it an actual boss or if you're self-employed, a dialogue with yourself um, about how much deep work – you're doing, uh, how it's going, and what it's producing. And in fact, I even recommend in the book that you ask your boss, what percentage of my hours should be deep work hours versus shallow work hours? Mm. And, and, and agree on, on a ratio there. And then have a regular conversation with them about, okay, what, what help do I need from you? What do I need to do in order to hit this ratio? You know, I, I only had two hours of deep work last week. We agreed that I should have 15. Um, this isn't good for either of us. What can we do? And on the flip side, also discuss, hey, you know, my 15 hours of deep work last week produced X, Y, and Z, which I'm really proud of and I think is really valuable for the company. I think having that dialogue, be it with yourself or with your actual boss, is really important if you're going to try to you know, uh, get the accommodations you need to really integrate this type of work and, and to do so in a way that everyone's happy about it. Awesome. Now, I'm going to make a plug for your blog, Cal. Uh, if you guys are looking for more information about planning deep work uh, and time management. Cal's got some great stuff on his blog, calnewport.com. Um, really great stuff. It's one of the few blogs I subscribe to. So go check that out. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I've been, I've been, uh, I've been writing. Yeah. I have this deep habits series on there where, you know, once or twice a month, I just talk about 
nuts and bolts things that, yeah. that help you build a deep life. Right. Really good stuff there. And uh, that's great supplement to the book. Um, so that last thing, making a, a bold move to show to yourself and maybe to others that you take your, your focus and your attention very seriously. And you're, you suggest like one of them quitting social media. That's crazy talk. What do you, you're, how can, how can you quit social media in today's media landscape? And how are you going to keep track of your mom and your, your cousins and, how are you yeah. going to like market yourself, right? How are you going right. to well, brand? You got a, your personal brand, new, new, Cal. What are we going to do about our personal brand? Yeah, it was, hey, you know, I've never had a Facebook account. And I'll tell you, I, I, I haven't heard from my mom in three years. I have no friends and I haven't sold any books. So I, I guess I should be on Facebook. Or yeah, I know. What a failure. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, in my own life, here's what I do. I, I've, so I've never had a social media account. Because honestly, I mean, these, these companies uh, – uh, hire very high priced uh people they pay them a lot of money to sit there and to try to think out how can i grab and disrupt as much attention as possible from our users it's it's you know it's called attention engineering and uh they have world-class experts who are working on how can they get as much of your attention how can they get you coming back to the phone and looking at it as often as possible and for as long as possible and to me, if you're someone who, who recognizes that your attention is your main tool, it's your main tool you use as a knowledge work craftsman, to use a tool like that, I, you know, it's the equivalent of being a professional athlete who smokes. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and I think this idea that these, these media companies in California that sell ads are somehow uh, at, the, at the core of our modern culture and what it means to be uh, you know, a, a citizen of the digital world, I just think that's somewhat preposterous. I mean, I've never had a social media account. I've never had any negative ramifications. It's just, it just doesn't uh, factor into my life. It has, it hasn't really been an issue. Um, so the way I like to think about it, it's not that social media is, is, is like intrinsically bad. Um, I just don't understand this notion that it needs to be universally used. I, my, I think the analogy should be like game of Thrones, right? It's something that, that, you know, you know, a lot of people are really into, but a whole lot of people could care less. And I, I, to me, that's where tools like Facebook or uh, uh, Twitter should be. That Yeah, there's some people who are techie and they really like it, but most people say this has nothing to do with my life. And that's not the way it is now. Um, so that's my own crusade, which, which uh, <laughs> a lot of people push back on. Tilting at windmills, Cal. You're tilting it, at windmills. It's probably tilting at windmills, though. I just don't understand these, <laughs> these attention economy. Um, I, I also uh, I don't use, I don't use the internet to entertain myself. Uh, by which I mean I've 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 opted out of the whole sort of attention economy out there of these uh, websites with the, the algorithmically engineered headlines that yeah. are, you know made and easily accessible and made to grab your attention. Yeah, I wrote about this a couple of years ago that I don't know how to web surf, so I don't have a stable of sites to go to. Um, you know, people usually have their cycle. You you go and you click. Yeah, there, we, click there. My wife, my wife, my wife and I call it the wheel. The right. wheel. You're yeah. stuck on like when when I I can see her clicking or she sees me like you're stuck on the wheel, aren't you? Get off the wheel. Yeah, so I don't have a wheel. I got rid of that and and it's it's great. So so and in other words, I don't have these things pulling at my attention. Um, and you know, it's not the fact that if I if I joined Facebook tomorrow at my age, uh, I'm not going to suddenly be using it um, 30 hours a day. And you know, a lot of people make this argument it's like, well, it's not like I use it that much anymore. Um, so for me at this point, it's really about the signal to myself. Yeah. You know, it's it's just like when I get when I want to take my my health seriously, I stop smoking, uh, I stop eating, you know, even the, having even the occasional cigarette. Same thing. I, I I treat my attention like a tool. 
uh, because I think it generates a very rich life and a very successful life. Um, so these type of things are commitments. Now, it could be something different for you. Maybe, you know, for some people, social media is key to their job. If, for example, you run a media company, right, like, right. the manliness, well, okay. Uh, you know, social media is great for companies because so many people use it. And so it would be folly, for example, for you not to be on there. Um, there's other things like this that could that could help be this demonstration, and I you know I found lots of interesting examples. There's there's this whole underground movement, for example, that no one knows about, the dumb phone movement, uh, where relatively high like high level executives are uh, getting rid of their smartphones, and they've all actually they there's this one dumb phone you can get on Amazon that they love. It's like very simple, and it's become like the cornerstone of this movement. But there's like hedge fund managers and all these people that no one knows this. Um, they all use the same like simple 1980s style phone purely to, to, to gain back their attention so they can you know, make better decisions in the workplace. So there's all these interesting things that people are doing. Um, but to me, it's the intent that matters. Right. I've actually contemplated getting a dumb phone a few times, but what I've done instead, I've made the compromise, and maybe this will be useful for people out there who aren't ready to like go full hog and just quit social media. Um, but yeah, be intentional about it. So like I've I make my devices dumb temporarily, and so there's different apps out there that you can use to that'll basically shut down the internet or shut down certain apps uh, for you know for set periods of time that you set. So. With my phone, like I can't access it in the morning when I'm with my kids, and I can't access it at all. Like certain apps, uh, like Instagram or Gmail, or my those are the two ones that are really distracting um, in the evening. And then during the day, I only give myself like there's an app that allows me. It's called Stay Focused, that only allows me like 30 minutes on each of those apps. And once I use that 30 minutes up, like I can't get on them anymore until the next day. And that's helped out a lot. And those are clear commitments. That's great. I, I mean, another simple thing you can do is like once you're home from work, you're there, your family's there, your kids are there, they don't need to reach you. Uh, you just leave your phone in the car. Yeah. Uh, and then, it, then it's, I mean, if there's an emergency, you can go get it. But you're like, no one needs to reach me in an emergency. And then you just don't have this thing uh, that, that you need. You know, when we go out, to, go out or go out to dinner or something like that, um, I'll often just leave my phone behind. So say, well, my wife has hers. So if there's an emergency, she can, you know, she can call. But I want to make sure that I don't have, you know, an outlet. So there's simple things like that you can do. Um, and again, it's the intentionality of it. It's you, you have to signal to yourself, I've made there's some sort of behavior that's a little bit difficult. It's not trivial to do, and it respects my attention. So by doing that, I'm, I'm signaling to myself this is something that's valuable. Right. And then also, I thought it was interesting on some of the same line. You you. Uh you cite our, our good friend Antonio Centeno, who's written a lot of style content of The Art of Manliness, how he uh, manages the influx of email that he, he gets. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I have a, a sort of whole chapter in a book called Drain to Shallows, where um, the idea is you can't get rid of, most people can't get rid of shallow work obligations in their work life. It's part of what just helps their job function. Um, but you have to get your, your arms around them and constrain it or you'll never have any time to do deep work. So I really get into how can you minimize shallow work and then take what you have and do it more uh, efficiently. So, so one of the examples I point to is uh, how do people, especially people who, who run their own companies or solo entrepreneurs, uh, what are strategies they can use to try to reduce the amount of back and forth communication that they have to do because that's a huge killer of time to concentrate if you're constantly having to communicate with people. And I found this, there's this uh, kind of a cool subculture that includes myself, but then I discovered there's a lot of other people doing this too, um, sort of public figures or people who run their own companies 
who who have this notion of a cinder filter, as, as my terminology. But basically, uh, instead of saying, "Hey, anyone can contact me for any reason. Here's just an email address. Have at it," they instead uh, put a filter that the people who want to contact them essentially are going to filter themselves. They say, "Here are the different reasons why people can contact me, uh, and and here's how I want you to actually do it." And in, in essence, if you don't fit into one of these categories, maybe you shouldn't contact me. Um, so it can be simple. Like in my case, I just don't have a general purpose email address you can use. I have a an interesting at calnewport.com, and I have rules around it where I just say, you can send me opportunities you think I might be interested in, but the rule is I don't really respond to them, except for in a couple of rare <laughs> cases. It's just setting expectations. Right, right? exactly. It's not something for conversation. Antonio had this great um, online form you had to go through. You had to click things and select things, and it kind of walked you through this process of who you are, why you wanted to contact him. Yeah, the certify, like this is not something I that I could find on Google. This is not something that was in the FAQs. I looked at the FAQs. And then finally, if you made it through this process, it was like, okay, now you can put the information that you want to send to me. Um, so I think those, you know, those type of trends maybe will be more common in the future, things to reduce the constant back and forth communication. Yeah, our filter that we have on our site is uh, you have to mail us a letter. We've had that up for, for a few years now. We, we took down our contact form. And now, yeah, we have our PO box. We're like, hey, if you want to contact us, write us a letter. And that in, that in itself filters people out immediately. How many letters do you get? Um, not very many, actually. I mean, I mean, like it depends. It fluctuates from week to week. Um, so I, I go to the post office once a week, and there could be five to ten letters in there a week. And what's what's here's the interesting thing, Kyle, is like the the nature of the communications I get have changed dramatically. So when I had a contact form, I was just getting a lot of PR stuff, PR pitches, um, emails from angry people who had read a post and they were just angry and they wanted to tell me how they were angry and how they disagreed with me and how I was a piece of crap. Um, people who had questions, like they would like answer, like ask me these really complicated questions, right? That would take me, and I, here's the thing, I would spend like hours answering their email and then I'd never get a response back. And I'm like, what the heck? Or the worst was like they had entered their email address in incorrectly in the form. So when I responded to them, I spent, you know, an hour on this email uh. I got a bounce back. I was like, geez Louise. Um, and so when I, when, I, when I took down the contact form, what I get now is just primarily just thank you notes. Um, I love this. Like, well, let, me, let me ask you this. Have you seen, has there been any negative ramifications on your business's profitability? No, not at all. I mean, we, we still continue to, to, to grow and to prosper. And, and the thing is, like, if, if people like, who really have like, a business prop for me like, really want to get to me, like, there's ways to get to me, right? They're, they're, I mean, they, if they really want to make it happen, then they'll make it happen. Right, but people who, but if they've gone through these extra efforts and have found your email address hidden somewhere, the expectations are different. Right. I, I'm not expecting a response because I'm, I'm, on, I'm going in through a back door here. Yeah, it, it, it puzzles me that there's still this mentality out there that uh, your business will flounder if you don't make this habit of responding to everyone's emails and then you, you write people who are in your situation but on other uh, websites or media companies and you get back these sort of plaintive autoresponders about like, you know, I, I'm going to try to answer everything and, yeah. and, uh, and you know, there's a um, what's his name over at uh, Pat Flynn at the Passive Income Podcast, massive, massive blog, massive podcast. He had this post recently about how he, he now has this full-time uh, assistant, a former executive assistant, so like a high level assistant that just sits there with them to help them make sure that like all his emails get answered. And the underlying, you know, assumption under this is this one to two thousand emails a month he gets or whatever, like answering those is at the core of succeeding in his business. So 
I love your example because it just tests that hypothesis. Like what actually happens if you just can't email me and nothing. In fact, your business is probably better because think about the time you gained back, the attention you gained back to write better blog posts. Right, exactly. I mean, it, it reduces their amount of anxiety uh, completely. And we, we have more time to write, you know, do podcasts, read books for podcasts, get questions ready for podcasts or write content for the blog. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it is. It is really weird. We we we've all bought into this idea that you have to be connected. You have to answer emails. That it's it's an article of faith, right? But uh, it's an apostasy that it isn't. But I think the apostasy is actually our salvation, right? I think so. Yeah, so. and 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 so I think maybe having a term like deep work helps because you can, you know, I found that it's it's difficult to just focus on the downside of distractions because it's complicated. Um, Things that cause distractions also have value, and it's and, and it, people get defensive, and it's just a little bit messy. But when you focus instead on the value of the opposite of distractions, a different conversation, and, and you you can give people. I mean, it's what I'm trying to do with this book is give people uh, a template. Okay, if you're just fed up with just this frenetic, distracted, whatever, what is the alternative? And I think the deep life is an answer to that question. This life where you 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 train your ability to focus, you spend a lot of time in intense focus. Uh, because of that, you really try to cut down and, and efficient, be efficient about anything else. And, uh, you know, you treat your attention like a tool. And that it's an actual, uh, instead of just saying, here's what's bad about Facebook, it's here's what life would look like if you didn't spend all your time on Facebook. And this is like a very positive thing. That there's, there's, a, there's a positive thing you can do. If you're one of the few to embrace the deep life, it's, it's like an actual positive step you can take. And the distractions will kind of work themselves out. Awesome. Well, Cal, where can people learn more about your book? Um, so, uh, calnewport.com, my website, you can learn about it. Uh, otherwise you can find it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever else you find books. Cool. Well, Cal Newport, thanks so much for your time. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. My guest today was Cal Newport. He's the author of the book, Deep Work. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And really go out there and get it. One of the best books I've read, just following just a few of the principles in it will radically improve your life and your work. Uh, believe me, as someone who's done that. So go check that out. You won't regret it. Also, for more information about Cal's work on deep work and productivity and time management, go to calnewport.com. He's got a great blog there. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher that help get the word about the podcast as well as give us feedback on how we can improve. As always, we appreciate your support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 